be seated. You can open your Bible to Psalm 1, somewhere in the middle of the Bible, if you don't know. Um, Psalm 1, the text is also printed uh, in the next page of the bulletin for you. And if you need one, there's probably Bibles on the table in the back. Uh, we're starting a new series in the Psalms. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. <clears throat> Some of you have said that you're interested also, uh, some of you have been studying the Psalms maybe for the last couple of years, uh, using them in your prayers lately and uh, devotional times. The book of Psalms is a special book in the Bible. Maybe, maybe you could say it's unique, uh, certainly special. Uh, it's the book in the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament, um, the book in the Hebrew Scriptures that Jesus quoted most often. It's probably the book in all the Bible that's most often read by Christians. I think I read some website that said it actually was the, the most often read book in the Bible by Christians. And uh, the Psalms have um, they've always had an integral place in corporate worship, uh, whether through responsive readings or chanting or singing like we just did. Uh, Martin Luther the great German reformer, said that the Psalms are a little Bible and a summary of the whole Old Testament. John Calvin said, I've been in the habit of calling this book an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And uh, Dr. Rob Rayburn at Faith Presbyterian Church in Tacoma uh, makes it a point to urge new pastors coming in being ordained, ready to serve in their churches, he urges them uh, quite frequently to better know the Psalms in order to minister to people in all manner of circumstances of life. We should all probably be in the Psalms all the time. We should all learn to understand them um, in light of the gospel. You learn to understand the Psalms in light of the gospel and use the Psalms the way Jesus would use them and the way he'd have us use them. In fact, we should read the Psalms and we should pray the Psalms in Christ, in Christ. That's a little phrase that has a lot of meaning that we can't fully explore right now, uh, even in this sermon. Hopefully we'll explore it more throughout the series. Katie read a little bit of uh, language like that in Colossians chapter 3, our New Testament, in Christ. That's how we should pray and, and read the Psalms. We should read the Psalms in Christ. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a little book called the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, I've recommended it to, uh, to you before, I think. He says, we must not ask first what the Psalms have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. Uh, so the idea is that once we discover what the Psalms have to do with Jesus, then, and only then, will we know what they really have to do with us. So we have to understand them in light of Christ, and Psalm 1 is a great introduction for that. It's sort of an interpretive gateway into the book that will help us to understand, help us to learn how to read and pray the Psalms in Christ. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Uh, let me pray, and we'll read the first Psalm. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to know uh, this Psalm in our relationship with you. Help us to see what it has to do with you, and therefore what it has to do with us. We pray that you would help us to grow in our prayers, our relationship with you, and in wisdom as we come to this psalm and hear it this morning. We pray in Jesus, in your name. Amen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Psalms are special in the Bible, but what are they? Is this sort of an introduction to the Psalms as we go through Psalm 1? Uh, what are the Psalms? The Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is Tehillim, which literally means praises. Psalms are praises. But Psalm 1 isn't really a psalm of praise. Bonhoeffer calls the Psalms the prayer book of the Bible. The Psalms are prayers. But Psalm 1 isn't really a prayer. There's not really a direct address to God. The psalmist isn't speaking to God in prayer or praise. So what are the psalms in general, and how is Psalm 1 representative of them, and what is Psalm 1 in particular? The book of Psalms is counted among the wisdom writings, wisdom literature of the scriptures, along with Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. It's a unique kind of wisdom. It's, it's not worldly wisdom. It's the Bible's special kind of divine wisdom, which has to do with our knowing God and our relating to God, which is why it's put so frequently in the Psalms in terms of our relationship and prayers. So Tremper Longman has a little book uh, called How to Read the Psalms. He says that the Psalter represents theology in its most vibrant form. Theology in its most vibrant form. So in the Bible, theology isn't portrayed as just a sterile intellectual task, a bare academic exercise. It's not what theology is in the Bible. Theology is an all-consuming pursuit of knowing God in your whole life. It resonates in your whole life. So the Psalms are poetry. Poetry that's sung. That's how it's been used throughout the history of uh, God's people. The, the, The Psalms are songs. The Psalms are wisdom that sings, singing wisdom. As such, the Psalms engage us in deep ways, deeper ways than just intellectual sort of propositional statements can make. Um, Psalms engage us, they pierce us, they flood us, they elevate us. They're God's word, not just God's word to us, they are that, But they're God's word placed in our own lips, really meant to be spoken aloud or sung, whether that means sung back to God in prayer or sung to one another or sung to our own souls. So theology in its most vibrant form, in its most resonant form, it's wisdom that sings. That's what the Psalms are. So whoever compiled and organized all the Psalms into one book, you know, there's 150 of them in our English Bible. Some of them probably originally were uh, joined together like Psalms 42 and 43, which we'll look at later. But um, there's about 150 Psalms, about half of them David wrote, 
half of them written by other people that we know and some that we don't know uh, from the scriptures, but um, uh, whoever organized and compiled these found them all and, and put them in the order that they're in, did a very fine job in making this psalm uh, number one. Basil the Great, one of the early church fathers, sometime in the 300s, said that this psalm is foundational to understanding the whole book of psalms. Foundational to understanding. If you get this psalm, you know what the psalms are about. It's a wisdom psalm. Generally categorized that way by uh, scholars, and uh, it sounds a little bit like Proverbs. It's poetic, the, the verse line uh, structure that is so common to Hebrew poetry, but it sounds like Proverbs because it shows, in its content, it shows the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. It's something you see pretty frequently in the book of Proverbs, and it tells how the righteous are blessed. Blessed. But it isn't advocating the world's version of wisdom or the world's version of blessedness. Everybody says that happiness, and sometimes that word blessed can be translated happy. Um, every, everybody says that happiness and fulfillment come from living a good life, so be a good person. Be kind to others. Don't do bad things. But you'll be happy. That's a, that's a good life. That's the good life, and you'll be happy. Everybody says that. Well, that's nice. It's nice. It isn't God's wisdom. It's not even very profound. It's pretty common to hear that. Um, so Athanasius... Again, in the early church, he said, if you wish to declare someone blessed, you learn how to do it here. You learn how to do it in Psalm 1. What is blessedness? If someone wants to live a good and happy life, well, this is what God says that means. This is what he says, and he needs to instruct us on this. So here he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So on the one hand, you've got the portrayal of what is actually sort of downward spiral of deepening corruption. Uh, beginning with, it starts with the counsel of the wicked, letting them influence and shape your thoughts, and, and terminating in the settled identity, someone who's seated among the scoffers, those who can only mock and deride the lives of others. That's their nature. On the other hand, you've got the portrayal of someone called the man, blessed is the man, um, that doesn't exclude women. Um, but blessed is the human being, but maybe blessed is the one particular representative uh, being uh, taught about here in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who delights, delights in God's counsel, not the counsel of the wicked, but in God's counsel, God's word, who always has it in his heart and on his lips. It isn't just that he's a virtuous person with impeccable morals. That's not what makes him blessed. It's that he loves to hear God speak. And then he takes God's own words on his own lips. And he speaks God's words after him. He's learned speech from God. And he speaks as God does. His life resonates with God's word. It isn't just that he strictly adheres to God's rules for good living. When it says the law of the Lord, it can be easier for us to think that he's talking about, you know, just something like the Ten Commandments or, you know, the Twelve Rules for Life, the title of the book. The, the law of the Lord, the law, the word for law, Torah, it doesn't just mean commandments. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Torah. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's not all just full of commandments. First five books of the Bible are, are known as the law. And you could really call all the scriptures the law. Uh, and, and the first five books especially, which are probably being referred to here, they include God's instructions. They include God's will for the shape of the lives of his people. It's also the revelation, first and foremost. The first thing you have is the revelation of who God is, the one true God. He's the creator you know, of, of his character, the revelation of his character and his works. As, a, as creator and redeemer, it's, it's revelation of his promises to his people. Uh, his salvation of his people. It's the shadows and the copies of the heavenly things that are seen in the temple system and the sacrificial system. It's the preparatory groundwork laid for the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the law, the way that this is being said. The law in which the blessed man delights is God's word declared to him for his trust. It's God's word to dictate all of his reality. Primarily regarding his relationship to God and his relationship to other people. That's what the law is about. So he loves God's word. He can't get enough of it. Do you ever feel that way? Sometimes I do. He can't get enough of it. He's, he's taking it in. He's constantly taking it in and speaking it and contemplating it and integrating it into his life. So the word that uh, is for meditate there, where he meditates day and night, uh, it, it really literally means murmur. And uh, uh, one uh, Jewish writer says, Robert Alter, he says that uh, what one do, this is what one does with a text in a culture where there is no silent reading. It was not normal for them to just take a book and go to a corner and read silently at a coffee shop. Um, this is what one does with a text in a culture where there is no silent reading. When you're reading, you read aloud. And that word is being placed on your lips. And you're speaking it and you're murmuring it. <clears throat> so the blessed man makes God's word his. It's his word now. He loves to hear God speak and he speaks God's words after him. So the thing that characterizes his life, this blessed man, the thing that makes him fundamentally different from the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer, it's deeper than just behaviors it's deeper even than just individual identity. It's deeper than that. It's his life resonating and singing in relationship with the God who speaks. It's a relationship with God that makes his life sing, all of it, with God's own word. That's what it means to be blessed. So you hear a lot of people, even in the church, saying, I have such an easy, comfortable life filled with nice things and good, compliant children. I am just so blessed. <laughs> Well, that's nice. That's not what God says blessed means. It's easy to make that mistake, all the circumstances of our life being arranged pleasantly for us, thinking that that's what blessed means. It's easy to make that mistake, especially when you read the next couple verses, get language like he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not like that. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. I mean, doesn't that sound like the righteous man, the blessed man, is just the picture of success? Doesn't it sound like everything's going to go his way in this life? And that the wicked, they'll suffer immediately the consequences for their treachery. 
It doesn't mean that the righteous man, the blessed man, will have a great job or a big house and a summer house and a fancy car and a good 401k and children who are doctors, lawyers, and senators. Just like it doesn't mean that the wicked will always and only live on the streets. If, like the righteous man, you go deep into the counsel of God's word, you go deep into God's counsel, you'll see that the scriptures acknowledge quite honestly that, you know what, the wicked often prosper. What do we do with that? I mean, we just sang it in our song from Psalm 73. The wicked all prosper. And firm is their health. That doesn't sound like chaff being blown away on the wind to me. What's up here? The scriptures, as you go deep into God's counsel, they acknowledge quite honestly that the blessed, I mean, it lays this out quite clearly, the blessed are poor. The blessed are the lowly and the meek a lot of the time. No, uh, Athanasius said, if you, if you wish to declare someone blessed, you learn how to do it from Psalm 1. What does this mean? Blessing means a life resonating and singing in relationship to the speaking God. It's a life making God's words yours, your words, in relationship with him. So Joshua 1.8, you get familiar, uh, similar, similar language here, that the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. It says this in a lot of places. You can prosper and succeed and be blessed the way the Bible describes it, even if you don't have two nickels to rub together or a, a place to lay your head at night. You can prosper and you can succeed in those circumstances because a resonant relationship to God, that's, that's true life. That's true wisdom. That's true success. Jeremiah 17 says uh, almost, almost the same language, the same story as we see in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and he's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So if you go deep into God's counsel and you delight in his revelation, you'll recognize language like this in all the scriptures talking about the refreshing, enlivening, sustaining presence, the streams of the Holy Spirit and the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit that he bears in your life, the fruit of God living in you and making you like him in his love. And that divine love, that divine love is eternal. That divine love is the very being of God. The true God is triune, Father, Son, living in the communion of the Holy Spirit. This divine love, this relational being, that's what blessedness is. That's what the scriptures say blessedness, true blessedness is. God is blessed. Always has been, always will be. God is blessed. Blessedness is first and foremost God's own divine happiness because of who he is. Father and Son in the communion of the Holy Spirit, the eternal delightedness of the God who dwells in love. So... The blessed human, the blessed human is blessed precisely because he's like this God. The blessed human is blessed because he is like the God of love. 
So Gregory of Nyssa said, likeness to God is the definition of true blessedness. It's the human whose life resonates with God's word, who's made God's word his own word, that isn't affected by a hostile environment. His leaf doesn't wither. He's always bearing fruit. His love is able to thrive even in the face of temptation and adversity and difficult circumstances. Alternatively, those who walk according to false religions, worldly philosophies, those who employ manipulative and deceitful tactics to get ahead, who seek some kind of twisted acceptance through disdaining others and ridiculing and rejecting others, scoffing, their self-centeredness will ultimately be self-destructive. It's a paradox they're not going to like. Their self-centeredness will ultimately be self-destructive. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. So when you harvest the wheat, you bring it to the threshing floor, and you thresh it, and you flail it, and you break it all up. It breaks it up, it breaks the chaff, the husks, the straw, away from the edible kernels that you want to keep. There's a lot to go through there. No, nobody's going to just set their kids at, sifting through it and picking out pieces uh, in a big harvest. But uh, fortunately, you winnow it, you toss it all in the air with pitchforks, on a slightly windy day, in order to separate it, the wind drives all the stuff you don't want away. And the, the stuff you do want, the grains, the kernels, the true kernels, they fall straight and you keep those. So, so sinners are pictured here as having no substance, no weight, no being, no glory. They're lacking the true being. They're lacking the divine substance of God's love, the, the blessedness of being like God. Therefore, they will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So the self-centeredness of sinners, um, it's worse than self-destructive. It's not just self-destructive. It's ultimately a matter for God's judgment. They're not going to be able to endure God's judgment. In the judgment, however, there will be a congregation of the righteous, believe it or not. There's going to be a congregation of the righteous because the Lord knows. And that, that language, again, in the scriptures um, is frequently that knowledge, that intimate knowledge, the kind of knowledge that a man has of a woman when they're married. Intimate knowledge of union. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if you go deep into God's counsel, and you delight yourself in his word, then you're going to recognize this very strange way of talking about salvation. It isn't that the righteous are okay because they know God's way, and they keep it, and they do it. It isn't that the righteous are okay because they earn God's favor. It's that God knows intimately through union. He knows their way. He knows the way of the righteous. He is intimately familiar with the way. And this is what makes the difference between sinners and the righteous. God's knowledge. It isn't so much who they are in and of themselves, but it's the fact that God knows them. God knows their ways. And uh, that way, his name is Jesus. That's what you get. When you go deep into God's counsel, you discover that the way that God knows intimately it's Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's become for us wisdom and righteousness from God. His life, his whole life, 
resonates and sings in relationship with God because he is the God who speaks. And he's not only the God who speaks, he's the word of God in the flesh. He's the human being who's made God's word his own. And that, that isn't meant to just be some weird mystical metaphysical statement that turns your mind to knots. It's meant to say that Jesus is God's expression. The God who speaks. Jesus is God's expression expressed perfectly, resonating and resounding perfectly in his humanity. His humanity is in perfect resonant harmony with God's own being in everything that he says and does. When he cares for people, when he heals the sick, when he forgives sins, when he challenges the self-righteous, he's resonating God's expression perfectly as a human being. He prospers in everything that he does. Whether it meant that he was understood and followed and praised, success, or whether it meant that he was identifying with the poor and lonely in his homeliness, in his homelessness, success, whether it meant that he was envied and hated and betrayed and abandoned and crucified, success, prospering, his prosperity, his success is in being God's word sung in his humanity. So Augustine said that the blessed man is, first of all, Christ. We have to figure out what the psalm means about Christ. Here it is. He's the one who embodies the blessed God. He's the one who not once walked in the counsel of the wicked, not once stood in the way of sinners, not once even thought about sitting in the seat of scoffers, who grew every fruit of the Holy Spirit to ripeness, who did not wither under the temptations of the devil himself in the desert, whose only delight was to do what he heard from his father and who then prospered in doing God's will, even though it killed him. And this is the crazy part, that even though he's the only one who is truly righteous, the truly blessed man, throughout all history, he was blown away like the chaff. He perished under the judgment of God as if he were the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer who could not stand in the judgment. Jesus took what was coming to the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. He took what was coming to people like us in order to enable us to stand the judgment in the congregation of the righteous. Believe it or not, there is this congregation of the righteous that people like us will be a part of through no fault of our own. Everything Jesus has done in our salvation, he's prospered in it, in everything that he's done. He is the way, and God knows him intimately. God has accepted him and approved him as the way for sinners like us to stand in the congregation of the righteous. So here's what we do with this psalm. We let it sing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we learn to sing the same song ourselves through faith in him, in Christ. Jesus is the representative blessed man whose resonant life in relationship to God becomes ours. God's word becomes ours, becomes our song in Christ. And again, as, as Katie read in Colossians 3, so put him on. Be found in him, 
be found in his humanity, which resonates God's blessedness perfectly. As you trust in him, cast off the ways of self-love. Put aside all of that. Put on his love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's theology in its most vibrant form, its most resonant form, and it actually means you will sing. Hear that? Maybe you can't sing very well. It literally means you're going to sing. And not just with your voice, but with your whole life. Your whole life will sing with God's love through faith in Jesus Christ. That love will begin to distinguish you more and more from the wicked or the sinners or the scoffers. And in case you're here and, uh, and you're not a Christian, you don't trust in Christ, don't hear me when I say that. Don't, don't hear me say that Christians are better than you. The thing that makes us different is not just something about me. The thing that makes us different is something about Jesus. It's his grace, and it's beginning to resonate with Jesus, with God's life like him. It does not mean that Christians will look to separate ourselves from sinners. Jesus ate and drank with sinners. He welcomed sinners. That's why we're here, all of us. So if we think that we're better than non-Christians for some reason in ourselves, or if we withdraw from non-Christians in any sphere of life, if we withdraw from non-Christians in fear or in disdain for non-Christians, that's a sin of ours that does not reflect the love of Christ. And we can confess that sin to non-Christians. We can ask non-Christians for their forgiveness, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, you should confess that sin along with us. You should confess sin. Would you admit along with us? That's what we do all the time. Admit along with us that you've broken God's law, that you haven't delighted in his reality that's revealed to you, that you haven't rejected him, that you have rejected him and his ways, that you've scoffed at him and even at his people. Every single one of us should be able to say, yeah, I've done that. We confess our sins together every Sunday. That's real. We profess our faith in Christ together too, so everybody should join us in doing that. Join us in making God's word our song and growing together in Christ. Growing together in our ability to sing his song as our own and learning his wisdom, learning his ways, his righteous ways in life with God. This is especially important for young people. So children, children in the room, especially important for you. If you're in the formative stages of life, if you're in school, or if you're a young adult, and you're swimming in the ideas of the world and you're strongly affected by things like peer pressure, you need this psalm. You need all the psalms. You need Jesus. But also if you've walked too long in the counsel of the wicked and you're set in your ways and you've stood for most of your life in the way of the sinner or gotten comfortable for many years in a scoffer's seat, you need this psalm. And you need Jesus. True blessedness is found in Christ. It's learned from the Holy Scriptures. So learn it. Learn it. If you want to have a good life and be happy, learn what that means from God. Learn it here. Learn Christ. Learn his song. Read the Bible. Pray for God's help to read the Bible. 
Find a nice, quiet time to do it, like the morning and the evening, like the Scripture says. And then do it and write notes to help you think about it and reflect on it while you're reading and pick up a study Bible or a commentary to help you think about what you're reading. Get yourself on a, a reading plan. I printed some out that are available in the entryway. Uh, read through the Bible in a year. Read it aloud. That helps. Read it aloud. Read it to each other and your families. Teach it to your children. Meditate on it together with them. Read the whole thing. Read the Psalms. Read the Psalms every day. Learn them together, but go deep into the whole counsel of God because it's the only way you'll be able to read those Psalms and fully hear the Christ-centered song that the Psalms sing. Ask your friends to read the Bible with you, whether they're Christians or not. Statistically speaking, they'll probably say yes. Come talk to me if you want more suggestions for going deep into God's counsel. John Calvin said, They are blessed who apply their hearts to the pursuit of heavenly wisdom. So I urge you, pursue that heavenly wisdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Seek out his way. Seek out the way of this Jesus, the way of the righteous that God knows with approval, which is found only in God's word. And make his word your song. Let it resonate in your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray for ourselves, for our families and our children, our loved ones, our friends and neighbors and co-workers, that you would count us among the congregation of the righteous, that you would know our way, that we would know your way, that we would hear your word and make it our own, that your word would be the heart of our lives the source of our life and strength. Your word would be everything to us because in your word we have you yourself given to us for a relationship. And as we begin to resonate with your word and it becomes our own and it becomes our song and and it spreads through every part of our lives uh, in our love, especially in the fruits of the Holy Spirit that you bear and make us prosperous in, we pray that um, even more of the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers would see the life that you have implanted in us through your word. They would see the seeds of eternal life in us through faith in Jesus Christ. They would see and know that you are the one who gives this good gift, even to people like us, and you can give it to them as well, that they would ask for this gift, that they would go to your word, and that they would begin to resonate in their lives through faith in Christ. We pray that you would use this psalm in our lives and in the lives of those we know and, and love and care for in order to draw us closer to yourself and give us the full assurance that you do love us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.